A reading from Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 to 14. Signs of the end of the age. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you very much, Mark. It's lovely to hear the word of God, isn't it? But particularly when it's read well. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate that. There was an elderly couple who used to attend Harvest called Reg and Pat Hobbs. I don't know if you remember them. They were such a delightful couple. And the thing that inspired me so much about them was their enduring love for one another. Um, and towards the end of, of Pat's life, she battled a lot with dementia, and it took a lot to take care of her. And Reg just did it in such a loving, sacrificial way. Um, it was often a, a real battle for him. And I was tremendously inspired by that. And we took Pat's funeral. And um, Pat's son, a guy called Dave Hobbs, used to cycle with a lot of different guys here from Harvest. And there were two of them at the service who were attending a, a funeral, I think for the first time since their own mothers had passed away. And so they were really battling. There's a special connection, isn't there, between sons and mums. It's, it's, it's unique. Anyway, these two blokes both got over, overwhelmed um, pretty much at the same time, didn't realize it, and ended up in the toilets. Um, and they were both busy crying in the loo <laughs> and comforting one another, um, which is just an indication of, of how much our mums mean to us. And, and I have this experience of love for my mother. It's a subjective experience in the sense that I have 
feelings for her. I have an emotional connection with her. But what I find so significant is that that subjective experience has changed since I've had to start looking after her a lot more than I did before. So up until 2017, my dad was still alive, so he would take care of her, um, do things for her. But now that he's passed, I'm investing a lot of my time, my energy, and my resources in her. And I've discovered that the love that I feel for my mum is on a completely different level to what it was before. There's been this exponential growth of love for my mother. So I want to put that out there. Don't, uh, we're not, we're going to come back to it because it does have a very strong bearing on what we're going to be talking about today. We've been studying these, these signs of Jesus' returns. That's what this series has been about. Not so much to be intimidated and frightened by the signs, but rather to figure out how we should live in response to what is coming. So, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Quite a, quite a frightening, sobering sign, the love of many, not just of some, not just of a few, but of many. We ask this question, well, why is fading love such a serious thing? Why is it such a bad thing? When you look at that passage, you can see that Paul, I beg your pardon, Jesus, is contrasting two kinds of people. There, on the one hand, there are those whose love has grown cold, and then, but, verse 13, on the other hand, there are those who will be saved. So what he's saying here is that either you will be saved or your love will grow cold. And that is quite a serious distinction. So we're going to do two things today. We're going to explore this topic of lawlessness. We're going to have a look at its definition, its increase, and its origin. And then we're going to go to the how question. How do we keep our love hot? And in that particular section of the sermon, we're going to be looking at the connection between love and lawlessness. So let's start off with lawlessness, the definition of it. The Greek word for lawlessness, which is used here in this passage, is anomia, which means contempt for or violation of the law. It's also sometimes translated in the Bible as iniquity or wickedness. So lawlessness is the opposite of righteousness. Have a look here. Paul is busy explaining the fact in Romans 6 that he's using slavery as an analogy. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. And, and then he goes on to say, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, the implication being that we were owned by lawlessness, we were owned by sin, now we are slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So there's, that's the exact opposite side of the coin. Lawlessness on the one hand, righteousness on the other. We could also define it as sin. Maybe that's a simpler way of looking at it. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, says the Apostle John, also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, when you think about laws, and when you think about coming up with laws, you need to have an understanding of what is right and what is wrong, isn't it? 
And so as human beings, over generations, we've come up with different sets of laws, and these laws should be based on what is right and what is wrong. And in fact, there are people who study this whole concept of morality and ethics, and they come up with ethical systems which help us to determine what is right and what is wrong. What the Bible does is it teaches us that since God created us, he is infinitely more superior to us. So he's the one who gets to define what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And so these people who study morality and ethics have come up with a system that they call the divine command system. That's the system that the Bible teaches us. So lawlessness is contempt or, or violation of God's law. And God has revealed to us what is right and what is wrong through his son Jesus and also through the Bible as well. And the Bible makes it clear, folks, that lawlessness is at its heart, at its core, rebellion against God. And we saw that in the Garden of Eden, didn't we? Adam and Eve wanted to replace God with something else. God said to them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, I get to define what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. But they said, no, we would rather be the ones who determine that. And so they rebelled against God and they replaced God with themselves. So the sign that Trevor looked at last week, this had to do with the, the sign of many people being deceived and led astray before Christ comes. And that deception has to do with what is true and false. What we're looking at today is what is right and what is wrong. So we've defined lawlessness, but let's just talk for a moment about its increase. Are we really living in an age when lawlessness is on the increase? And there's a lot to say about this. I'm sure many of us have different theories about whether lawlessness is increasing or not. But what I would like to say, just as one thing, is that lawlessness obviously has to do with right and wrong. So we need to consider very briefly an ethical system that prevails in our worldview. This is a, a, a system that is established primarily in the Western world, but we see it right throughout the world. And if we can understand this system, then we will see why lawlessness is on the increase. So the most prevalent ethical system which is um, held to or subscribed to at the moment in our post-Christian and post-modern world is the worldview of relativism. And there are two branches of relativism. First of all, there's ethical relativism, and then there's ethical subjectivism. What is ethical relativism? That is that basically culture and society gets to decide what is acceptable and what isn't, what is right and what is wrong. And so you don't have an absolute definition of right and wrong. It depends on what we as a society decide is right and what is wrong. And of course, you can see there's terrible, terrible consequences of that sort of thing happening throughout the world. For example, in the States, we read around about 600,000 children killed every year through abortions. That's because society has now defined that doing that is okay, it's acceptable. So culture decides whether something is right and wrong, 
um, and then it's acceptable to do it if everybody is doing it. Ethical subjectivism, the second one. Have you ever heard people saying, well, that's okay, it's right for you, but it's not right for me? That's ethical subjectivism, and it's so prevalent in our society today. And both of those ethical systems, even if you just think for a moment about it, you can see that they would lead to an increase in wickedness. Right and wrong are not defined, folks, by the culture. They're not defined by the individual. Wrong is wrong, even if everybody is doing it, and right is right, even if nobody is doing it. This is what we believe as Christians, what the Bible tells us. Let's have a look at the third aspect of lawlessness. It originates in Satan. Maybe you think this is obvious, but let's just reflect on it. Let's just chew on it for a moment. Last week, we learned that Satan is a deceiver. He is the deceiver of the brethren. He is also lawlessness, uh, lawless. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes about the Antichrist. Um, this is, uh, there have been many antichrists throughout history, but there is going to be an ultimate antichrist who comes shortly before Jesus returns. He's described in the Bible as the man of lawlessness. And this is what Paul writes. He says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. So when Satan is active, there is lawlessness. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Here's some more evidence. Remember that John wrote, everyone, we looked at it earlier, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And then a little bit further on in that in that passage of scripture in verse 7, he wrote, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the evil one. The work of the evil one, by implication here, is lawlessness, to get people to disobey God. We do not have freedom to be lawless as sons and daughters of God, because if we are, we're aligning ourselves to the wrong side. Just look at again at verse 7 there, where it says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. What we need to understand here is that the practicing of righteousness doesn't lead to us being righteous in God's sight. Actually, the practicing of righteousness comes because we have already been made righteous in God's sight. There has already been a fundamental change that has happened. Think of it in these terms. I believe that a lime tree and a lemon tree look very similar when they're small. They certainly would to me because I'm not much of a, <laughs> a horticulturalist. But when you look at the two of them, they look pretty much the same. But once they grow up, the one produces spherical green fruit, and the other one produces yellow elongated fruit. It's not the fruit of a lemon that makes a lemon tree a lemon, is it? No, it's already a lemon tree, and it produces the fruit of lemon, and so on for the lime. And so what we're saying here is that 
there needs to be some sort of a fundamental change in us and the evidence that that change has happened, the outworking of that change, is a practicing of righteousness. Think of practicing tennis, folks. If you practice tennis, and you practice tennis, <laughs> you do it a lot, don't you? You think about it all the time. You wonder, how could I improve my serve? Why is it doing this? Why isn't it doing that? And you think about it and you meditate on it. We need to be practicing righteousness. So to sum up, lawlessness is contempt for or violation of God's law. One of the increasing contributors to increasing lawlessness in our time is that ethical system of relativism. And then lawlessness originates in Satan. That's why it doesn't go with us as Christians. That's why we do not get into the habit of practicing sin over and over again. But now let's talk about this idea of keeping our love white hot, just burning and burning for God until the time when Jesus returns. How do we keep it? Well, at this point, I think it's very important for us to find a connection between dwindling love on the one hand and increasing lawlessness on the other, because there's an inverse proportion, isn't there? The more the lawlessness increases, the less love that there is. So what is the relationship between these two things? Have a look at what Jesus says. Or Mark, the Apostle Mark in Mark. He says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. Jesus was disputing with some other teachers of the law. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, commandments, love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And then Paul says in verse 13 in Galatians chapter 5, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, those desires to do the wrong things. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Can you see the connection there? The whole foundation of the law is love. The whole intention of the law is to facilitate love. God is love. We are to be loving people. And his law facilitates love. And love is the most amazing thing in the whole universe. We all recognize that. That's the connection between the two. But how do we keep it white hot? Love God is the first part. And how do we love God? How is it expressed? This is what the Apostle John says. If you love, uh, sorry, this is Jesus speaking. <laughs> I'm getting really confused between who's writing what. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Simple. That's what Jesus said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love is not primarily subjective in the sense that it's something that I feel, that it's an emotional connection. It's not primarily that. It's actually a commitment expressed in action. And then as we get into the habit of expressing that commitment in action, the subjective aspect of love starts to grow. And that's been my experience with my mum. Because before 2017, I wasn't um, spending anywhere near as much time 
with her. I wasn't spending any much, um, any, anywhere near as much energy. Boy, the energy that we've expended, it's been quite big. But it's been wonderful because I have this love for my mum that I've never had before. And it's because I've been serving her. The opposite of love for God, folks, sometimes it's useful, isn't it, when we're thinking about things, well, what is the opposite, is love of the world. This is what the Apostle John said in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, there it's so perfectly summed up what the love of the world looks like. Eh? It's being obsessed with pleasure, the desires of the flesh. It's being obsessed with the desires of the eyes, which is owning things, having things, and then enjoying things, and then the pride of life, which is achieving things. All of these things, that's how the love of the world is manifest, are not from the Father, but are from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. They're not going to abide forever because they're doing the will of God. They're going to abide forever because they've been born again, because they've been put into right standing with God. But the evidence of that is that they're doing God's will, and they will abide forever. So Paul also tells his pupil Timothy what will happen as the end of the age approaches. Listen to this. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Why? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. You know, this reinforces exactly what Jesus was saying as well. Can you see that people who will love themselves, they're going to love money, they're going to love pleasures rather than loving God. And if we love ourselves more than God, we will never keep God's commands. We need to be totally taken up with a love for God if we're going to obey his commands. The same applies if we love money or if we love pleasure more than God. And notice that these people maintain an appearance of godliness and that we should start avoiding them. This is not talking about people who are out in the world who do not profess to be Christians. This is talking about people who are in the setup. They appear to be holy people, but they're not. They're carrying an appearance of godliness, but there is no power there. So then, love for God is expressed in obedience to his law, and the more we practice it, the more we obey him, the more we practice righteousness, the more our love for God is going to grow. But it's also expressed, this is the second part of the section, by love for others. In fact, you can't have a love for God without having a love for other people. This is what the Apostle John says, John 3, 16 to 18. By this we know love. Here's a definition of love. 
He laid down his life for us. How should we respond to that? And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But if anyone has the world's goods, now he's giving an example of what it doesn't look like to love our brothers and sisters. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Therefore, Jesus said, the most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then the second, love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And Paul wrote to the Galatians, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A person who truly loves God loves others. That's how we can see it. And so let's make sure that our love for others is always growing. Such an important thing to do, just to look back and say, am I loving people more this year than I was last year? And Paul saw this in the Thessalonian church. Listen to this. Listen to what he writes. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. Give thanks to God for the Thessalonians. Why? It's right. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So how do we keep our love from going cold? First of all, we love God by obeying him. And second of all, we love others as we love ourselves. Now, the fact is that you can do these things and, and it won't be enough. Of course, we do need to do these things. But the third thing that we need to do and to make sure that it's happened in our lives, if we are going to love until the end, is to be converted. The first aspect of conversion, as it relates today's, to today's um, sermon, is a change of ownership. Let's just have a look at that briefly. If you're owned or mastered by the wrong thing, there's no ways your love is going to stay hot. The problem is that before Jesus converts us, before he changes us on the inside, we were actually owned by lawlessness. Paul writes to Titus that we as Christians are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, listen to this, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, to redeem us from all lawlessness. Folks, redemption is about paying the price to set somebody free. That was the definition of it. Redemption is to pay the price to set somebody free. So we were dominated by lawlessness. A price needed to be paid to set us free from lawlessness so that we could then become God's possession rather than the possession of lawlessness. That's what Jesus did. He's changed our ownership. Isn't that wonderful? 
you know, we can choose to sin, but it doesn't go with our ownership <laughs> because we're no longer owned by lawlessness. We don't have to sin because we belong to God. Another aspect of conversion is rebirth. The, the Apostle John wrote, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Can you see the cause and the effect there? The cause, born of him, the effect, practices righteousness. What I love about this verse, when you look at it in the original Greek, is that born of him is in what is called the perfect tense. And it's very significant because the perfect tense, when it's used in the Greek, describes an action that happened in the past, but an action and that's completed, but an action that has ongoing consequences for the present and for the future. And so this means that you were born of God at some time in the past, and the consequence of it is that you bear fruit for righteousness. It's like, to give you another example of the perfect tense, if we say, it is written. If the lawmakers decided 50 years ago to come up with the law and it was written, it happened in the past, but it has an effect on us today because it is written. Those who have been born of him. Folks, when I think of it this way, I, I've been born, obviously, of my mum and my dad, and I carry a lot of their likeness. And it's the same for you, because you've been born of God, you now carry his likeness, and his likeness is the practice of righteousness. Just take note, though, we do not get born of God through practicing righteousness. You're probably going to get bored of me saying this, but it is just so true because often we get it the wrong way around. You don't get born of God through practicing righteousness. Obedience to God is the result of being born of God. And the only way that we can be born of God is to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross. Turn away from our own sinfulness and follow him. That's the only way it happens. Let's have a look at the third aspect of conversion. And there's a lot of hope in this because I think we do sometimes get frightened when we just think, wow, is my love for God actually going to grow cold? So let's talk about abiding in God. Once you've been converted, you abide in God. Isn't that amazing? That you live in God and God lives in you, wouldn't that make all the difference, no matter what is going on in the world around us? Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. How? By the spirit whom he has given to us. God has not only given us rebirth, but he's actually taken up residence within the walls of our life through the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Once again, keeping God's commandments is the result of God living in us and us living in him. Yes, we do take responsibility. Yes, we do make decisions. But it all starts with God living in us and us living in him, obeying his commands, loving others by laying down our lives for them. So how can we be sure 
that we are going to endure in love. Well, if God has put his Holy Spirit in us, what are the fruit of the Spirit? What, what is the first love, fruit of the Spirit? It's love. And we also learn in 2 Corinthians 13 that love never fails. It never gives up. So we have a source in us of enduring love that will never, ever be quenched. Isn't that amazing? Because we have been born in, of God, and he's put his spirit inside of us, and we are in him, and he is in us, and the Holy Spirit is in us, and the fruit of the spirit is love, and love never fails. Our love will never grow cold. So let's get out there, folks. Let's get out there and love radically. Let's lay down our lives for people. Let's take risks for God. Let's obey his commandments. Why? You know, why would we want to, to serve some piddling created thing? You know, I think uh, C.S. Lewis had it right when he said, you know, our main problem is not that we enjoy pleasure. Our main problem is that we take pleasure in the most pathetic of things, things that are just not going to deliver the goods. God is the one who delivers the goods. And so my prayer is that your love for God would grow, my love would, for God would grow, as we just seek to please him more and more. Let's abound in love. Let's, let's make sure that love grows from one year to the next. It's, it's been happening by God's grace in my life. As I said, I love my mum more than I ever have before, and I, I hope that next year I'll love Gail and Matthew and, and you guys more than I do this year. And then may the love of every one of us increase for one another as well, not only for God, but for one another. And I would just close in saying that if, you, if you've been listening to me and you're just like, I really think I need to explore this idea of God converting me. Because so many of us fall into that temptation of thinking that religion is all about doing things to be changed by God. No, it, religion is about being changed by God, being born again. That's the wonderful thing about the Christian religion, is that we come to God and we put our faith and our trust in Him, and He changes us on the inside so that we become different. We become a lemon tree instead of a lime tree or whatever it happens to be. It, just keep exploring that. Keep going. Keep coming to church. Keep asking questions. Come and chat to me. Come and chat to Trevor. Um, somebody else that you know from church and, and find out how you can be born again because it's the most important thing that you could ever do. Your love will not grow cold if you have been born of God and adopted into his family. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that obeying the law, about doing the things that you require of us, is so special, um, not because it's to cramp our style, but because it's all about love, and love is the most important thing in the universe. It's, we thank you that your laws are designed to increase our love for you and our love for other people. And... We ask that you would just ignite such a fire in our hearts with love for you and with love for others. 
And for those who are still not sure if this is, if this is all true, I just pray, Father God, that you would keep them searching, that you would keep them coming back for more. And those who are beginning to see that it is true and haven't made that commitment, Father, I pray that you would just lead them to come and chat um, so that they can do that, so that they can put their trust in you. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.